Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Manin, and today I'm welcoming Samantha Muka, Assistant Professor of Science, Technology, and Society at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. We'll be discussing her first book, published by the University of Chicago Press, uh, Oceans Under Glass, Tank Craft, and the Sciences of the Sea, which dives into the history and sociology of tank of tank craft and the role of, of various uh, of various kinds of aquariums and uh, and people involved in the making of those aquariums in the study and preservation of the oceans. So, uh, Professor Sam, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, I would like to start maybe by uh, if you could please share a little bit of your own research trajectory and how you came to study the history of aquariums and tank craft because uh, we, we don't you know in 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 STS there are a lot of a lot of very very interesting topics that are being discussed but to be quite honest I haven't come across much um, books uh, on uh, aquariums and diving into that history so. Maybe could you tell us what caught your interest at first in this in this topic? Yeah, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, so it's a, a weird thing that that caught my eye, which was um, when I uh, started uh, graduate school, I started as a historian of medicine and I worked on eugenics and physiology. Uh, and I ended up working at the university um the APS archives in eugenics and found a eugenicist that worked at the New York Aquarium. So I kind of followed the archives there um, and got really interested in the fact that not really a lot of people were talking about aquarium history more generally and how it fit into um, the history and sociology of biology, the way that we have a tendency to talk about it. Um, It's a field that people lump a lot with others. They'll talk a lot about zoos or they talk a little bit about modeling, but the aquarium has largely been kind of subsumed into those other fields. And the more that I looked at the archives, the more that I realized that I felt at least that 
aquariums were kind of integral and, and central to the history of, of biology and the way that we think about not just marine biology, but all biology <laughs> from the early 20th century onward. Um, and so I got interested in the field of marine biology and found that there's not a lot of boundaries in, in it. So we have this tendency to talk about uh, sciences as maturing. They start out, they're kind of natural history, and then they mature. And then you get this full grown field with boundaries and expertise and standardized technologies. Um, and what I found is that marine biology didn't follow that path. And what happened was um, I couldn't figure out why. Why, if I walk into a marine biology laboratory, um, do I feel like there are just a lot of people running around that have um, really non-standardizable expertise? Um, and I thought at first it was location, like everyone just works on the ocean, they hang out near the ocean. So I wrote a whole dissertation on marine biological laboratories, and, it, and that was not the answer. So I started to look more at technology. And uh, I became convinced, and I'm still convinced, <laughs> that the aquarium is a technology um, that just doesn't follow the same rules that we've been taught in STS and uh, history of science. It's not standardizable. Uh, it's highly localized. And because of that, uh, you get like this very permeable membrane in the field of marine biology. So if you can work a tank... It doesn't matter if you're an engineer by day. It doesn't matter if you're a scientist by day. It really does not matter how you developed that expertise. You are accepted into the field in a certain way, and you are kind of epistemologically, you become part of that economy of knowledge production in a really useful way. Um, and when I would go into laboratories to do historical and, and kind of sociological research, um, I got enfolded into that. Uh, and so people would ask me, like, I have a problem with my my aeration in my tank. What do you think I should do? Right. And it just reinforced this idea that there was something about the tank that made this field so different. And so I followed that through. And that's where the book came from. Could you maybe just just to follow up, uh, like more of a methodological question. Um, you you mentioned how, you know, you, you started uh by following a lead, essentially an archival lead, um, but then found that there wasn't much literature around uh, that topic. So like methodologically, how did you solve that problem of first maybe finding the best framework to understand what you were uh, discovering uh, and, and at the same time also gather the evidence, right, that uh, maybe are scattered all across the place and maybe in, in archival archives that we don't really expect? Yeah, <laughs> this is a crazy field to work on because, um, so I work in the book with three different communities that work with aquariums. So there's this really high end hobbyist community. And by high end, I mean, these are people that dedicate an enormous amount of financial and intellectual resources to keeping aquariums. They uh, work on this all the time, but they are largely connected through a kind of informal um, writing network, but a very formal face-to-face -face communication network. Um, the other group is public aquarists. Um, they're professionals who work at public aquariums. They also don't write down a lot of their craft. There are archives that exist, um, but they are not well-formed because very few people have done research on them before. So 
Um, they, they're not really well known. And then there are professional academics who work with aquariums. And some of them do have what we would consider to be formal archives. Um, and I use those in the book. So when I started, um, it was made pretty clear to me that I was not going to be able to find a lot on hobbyists, um, the traditional kind of historical way. I had to go out. So I started to do two things. One is to, um, they have a tendency as a, a community to communicate through um, like trade books. Let me teach you how to keep an aquarium. So I started gathering all of those to me. Now I'm like the only person that does not have aquarium that has every single book on keeping an aquarium. It looks a little ridiculous. Um, but then I started doing interviews with that community um, and the same thing with public Aquarius, uh, Aquarius. So I, I, instead of trying to find a paper trail, decided instead to go out and try to just ask people what they thought their history was, how they learned things. And because a lot of the craft that I was tracing was really tacit, um, it sent me in a lot of different directions. So a living Aquarist um, might say that they learned something from someone younger than them that wasn't even alive <laughs> learned that thing. So you get this sense in which um, you, there's no way to use one method when tracing this history. And it takes a lot of just listening to uh, a lot of different directions to kind of piece it together. Uh, I framework wise, always knew that I really wanted to be my my frame to be the actual technological kind of movement of expertise. And part of that was um, that you can see it so beautifully. You can kind of see these tanks be uh, become uh, not standardized in kind of the way that we think about it scientifically, but standardized in that people go like, okay, this is the tank that we're going to start to try to build. Um, and you see that usually at, at institutions. And so the institutions that I paid most, the closest attention to are public aquariums, they are responsible for keeping things over a long period. The public is not going to allow you to keep <laughs> um, aquariums going that you can't keep fish in. And so they perfect a lot of the stuff that gets moved around. So a lot of my focus methodologically was on finding public aquariums that had archives and also um, that I could visit and work in. I did eventually work at the Smithsonian aquarium in uh, Fort Pierce, Florida. It's the St. Lucie County Aquarium. There is a historical tank there. So I also did some um, kind of participant observation and uh, did extensive interviews there. Uh, but overall, it was really just trying to kind of piece some things together. It's useful that I'm not part of the um, communities that I study, so I don't keep tanks. But it's also hard because they are pretty um, tight knit in some ways. So, you know, being able to work at aquariums, to interview people and, and go into them and talk to them, uh, got easier over time as I had built up a network, but it certainly took a long time to do. It's very interesting. You really have to be omnivorous in a way to, to, to gather all these, these different kind of evidence, but also, uh, what I find particularly interesting in what you were saying is, and, and you, you know, you, you talk about it in the book uh, from time to time, um, this idea that the paper trail is very scattered or just at some point just stops and then restarts after a gap. Uh, I think to be 
what was very interesting is that it makes us reflect in general on our definition of what's quote unquote modern science is. And usually we equate it with a sort of systematic uh, written recording system, right? And the idea that, well, modern science is because we are putting everything on paper at some point, we're recording every single move we're making. And it turns out it, when we read your book in the field of oceanography and the study of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, of the underwater world, that it's actually not uh, the case. So how, how do you reconcile here maybe the, you know, what, what you found with maybe your more traditional understanding of what modern science is? What, what are the implications essentially of looking at tanks for our understanding of modern science? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, I'm always, you know, there's always one of those things about your work that you're like, I hope someone else is really interested in citation trails, right? Like, or like patents. This is a thing I want to talk about. Um, there is a sense in which when you work in marine biology or the history of marine biology, it's actually really hard to be convinced that it is a modern science in the same way that others are. And so when we talk about um, disciplinary formation in history of science, we have a tendency to talk about this, this kind of narrative where things form and we can watch them and we, we can do that because by marine biology. Uh, so post-World War II, uh, oceanography and marine biology, they get together <laughs> and they try to decide how to get how to define themselves so that they can get money from the government and oceanographers define themselves based on the statistics that they use. Right. So they have this like core of definition and the way that they publish and the way that they have this is that they're on boats and they use statistics, right. That's their somewhat their definition. Um, and marine biology just comes up with this idea that they, they cannot define themselves. They are just people who work on ocean stuff. Um, and so you know, you you might imagine that they don't count as a modern science. I'm also, though, very hesitant to say uh, that they're a natural history. So some historians would say, okay, well, then maybe they're a natural history. They're certainly not that. They're, they're just um, an incredibly porous field because of the technology that they are using to model their environment, the aquarium. Um, and I think it, it says a lot, at least to me, uh, about the way that we have a tendency to automatically focus on academic science as that form of what is modern. What is modern? It's a science that has boundaries and that those boundaries are um, are created by the academy in a very particular way. So when you look at marine biology, yes, the academy is there. But if you if you think about the amount of people that keep even a marine biology laboratory at a major institution going, they often are you know, either only have a BA or uh, don't even have that. Uh, you know, they they are, are doing things in network with a lot of people that aren't academic. And a lot of the knowledge that they rely on, they don't cite because it's unclear how they would do so within their field, which I think is really useful to talk about citations. So there are all these gaps in academic citations but what's funny about those gaps is that um, if you read the papers, they will actually say they met that person or they know that person or you can trace them. They're just not formally cited. And part of that is about 
um, you know, the things that we can talk about when it comes to how different communities define expertise and define kind of a reliable knower, right? So if someone says it and it's really useful, but they don't, they don't fit into the academy, do you have to cite them? I guess in some places you do and in some places you don't. And you see um, in those citations a kind of reflection of the individual's understanding of what is common knowledge and who gets to create academic versus common knowledge and that, right? So um, there seems to be a definition in modern science or the way that we think of it as um, primarily exclusionary, right? Or, or, or something of that nature. And I would say marine biology just isn't, it's not really like that. <laughs> so to, to, to continue that, that train of thought, um, I mean, you, you already mentioned uh, what, what are the main groups of actors that you're focusing on, right? And if I can like maybe summarize it, it's like um, high-end hobbyists, as you just mentioned, uh, public aquarists, and uh, what we, we what we would call professional scientists, right, or or, or academics, and um, yeah, what's very interesting, I think, across the book is um, how some some knowledge uh, craft uh, techniques are deemed uh, scientific or valuable or worthy of being attributed to specific individuals and uh, and then cited, as you mentioned, and some actually aren't, and there's actually a, a very a quick passage in your book that I'd like to quote, uh, where you write, uh, specifically in the case of reef tanks, um, where you write, it is clear that work with reef tanks has resulted in knowledge about ocean's coral reefs. Unfortunately, it still seems that these tanks have not been fully accepted as scientific tools. So that's here a very interesting paradox, right? And and my question would be, uh, what kind of power dynamics are we seeing here between these three different groups uh, of um, of agents, right, involved in in oceanography and tank craft? Um, you know, is, are, are we seeing um, similar patterns going on depending on the kind of um, the kind of tanks we're talking about or the kind of science we're talking about? It depends, actually. It's really interesting that you mentioned reef tanks in this because um, where reef tanks are concerned, hobbyists have an enormous amount of power. Uh, they're really leaders in that field. Um, and a lot of them, so the, the middle space, the group that serves as kind of a bridge here are the public aquarists. They have a tendency to either be former or current hobbyists, and also have a somewhat advanced degree. Many of them get a master's in uh, biology or zoology, um, and some of them have PhDs when they enter the field. Um, and so they are, you know, public aquariums have a tendency to be this space where people meet from those other two groups, um, and public aquarists have a tendency to be able to talk to both groups in a way that makes sense. Um, but where coral is concerned, almost all coral husbandry for tanks started in the hobbyist community, and it really has continued in that community until really about a decade ago. Um, even the scientists that were using tanks for coral, they were primarily doing the work at their home and then bringing it into the laboratory. So they were hobbyists first and then um, academic scientists sec uh, second. Um, but that's how the knowledge worked its way into the academy is that they took this hobbyist work and then they translated it for their uh, academic peers. But even then it didn't work, <laughs> it didn't work too well um, because um, 
there is a an endpoint difference. So hobbyists and public aquarists, they want to keep their coral alive and they don't care how they do it. I mean, they can tell you often how they do it, but then there'll be some point where they say it worked and I don't I don't know why. And they're comfortable with that because their ultimate goal is to keep that thing alive. They can tell you why things don't work and that's really beautiful. And so you'll say, you know, why'd you lose that whole tank? And they'll say, you know, I, uh, the oxygen level was wrong or my UV level was wrong or something like that. Um, scientists are much more interested in controlling variables early so that they know exactly what's happening. <laughs> um, and because of that, you know, it depends on what your ultimate endpoint is, who has the power in this relationship. And so at the moment, what's happening in the coral industry is that the ultimate goal is to restore and replant coral reefs throughout the world and then try to secure them in a way that we can against climate change. Right now, the people who are in the public aquarium community and in the hobbyist community have a leg up because they're totally comfortable working in an unknowable environment and just kind of, um, you know, feeling comfortable with not knowing variables, but knowing how to react when something goes wrong. So I was actually just interviewing someone a couple of weeks ago and they said, um, almost all of the techniques that aquarists, public aquarists and hobbyists use in their um, reef tank building translates really well to the open ocean. Like you can just do the exact same thing in the ocean and it works. Um, and that's not the case for scientists. So academic trained scientists are very uncomfortable working in an environment that they don't exactly know what all the variables are at any given moment. Um, and their coral are not always as hardy because of that. Um, However, you know, academic scientists are really good at once they figure something out, you know, putting that into uh, circulation so that it can be built upon. And so there is really a space for all of these groups. And it really just depends on um, what you're going to do with the knowledge, right? If you're going to build on it because you need to, you know, figure out genetically how to um, make transgenic coral um, the academy is, is going to be helpful here, but they're also going to use all of that information from hobbyists, right? If you make transgenic coral, you put it into a tank and you can't keep it alive. It doesn't matter <laughs> what you did. So really what the book gets at is while there are some power struggles, depending on what type of tank you keep in truth, um, there are enough people circulating that are part of two like part of two groups or more, um, and there is a requirement that all of this information work together, that the power struggles are not as, as uh, overwhelming as you might imagine. I, and another aspect of the book that, that really interested me, and that kind of, you know, uh, that, that is linked, obviously, to the fact that there are so many different actors involved in, uh, in tank craft, in making knowledge, building knowledge about uh, the ocean and the sea, um, is really a case where the object of study itself is kind of dictating uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of what's happening because the ocean is both vast but also incredibly elusive in, as yeah. as, a, as a scientific object. And I think you start the book by just reminding uh, the reader that well, we only know a very small fraction of anything that's out there uh, in in the ocean. Um, so 
Um, to, to me here, what concept that seems very important in this case is the concept of tinkering that you're using all throughout the book. Um, and I think to me, it's, it's such a very, very interesting concept uh, to use, especially in relation to the ocean, um, because we have to be inventive, right, yeah. in a way, to create some sort of contraption, some sort of apparatus that allows us to uh, study the ocean. But as you remind us, and I would like you maybe to delve a little bit about this, as you remind in the book, is that, and something that, to be honest, we, yeah, never crossed my mind, I thought of aquariums as being very sensitive to different kinds of parameters uh, inside the aquarium, obviously, right? Uh, but I never thought of the fact that there was also the uh, surrounding environment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never thought of the fact that, yes, an aquarium that is set, uh, let's say, um, in France will not react the same way if it's set uh, somewhere else in, the story, in, in Australia or anywhere else. Um, so could you maybe like, you know, give us a sense of, you know, the importance of that concept of tinkering and how it applied here to your research? Yeah. So I talk about tinkering a lot. I think this is the thing that makes the most sense to me. And part of it is um, kind of questioning how we decide what we know about something that is is, is possibly unknowable. <laughs> um, and so we have this idea that, that when we kind of figure out how to do something, we know that thing. Um, and when it comes to aquariums, we kind of know. We know uh, a little bit. But the problem is that um, there are a lot of variables that, that change the way that something reacts in an aquarium. So, um, you can have moon jellies are, you know, ubiquitous in the ocean. They exist everywhere. Um, they're, they're, they're kind of just, you know, uh, all over. You can see them on the West coast of the United States. You can see them on the East coast. You can see them in Japan. You can see them, you know, and the Northern and Southern hemispheres, and what's really interesting about that is, is they're pretty hardy. So they're the first jellyfish that are successfully kept in an aquarium. Um, and often you'll hear that people do a lot of work on them because they're pretty hardy. But there is a difference between a moon jelly that comes from Japan and a moon jelly that comes from the West Coast of the United States. It's subtle, um, but sometimes they're smaller they have different kind of biorhythms. They react differently in aquariums. And so they are considered in the field to be a little bit different. And someone will ask you, you know, are these jellyfish local or did they come from somewhere else? Um, one of the most astounding things is to realize that, that when you put something in an aquarium, uh, it doesn't quite change everything about them. And so coral has been a struggle because for a very long time uh, they didn't realize that coral were spawning based on lunar cycles, often from the place where you got them and <laughs> not from the place that you put them. Um, and so you have to be, I think, really more connected to the field when it comes to using laboratories at, uh, or laboratory equipment that is for marine biology it doesn't change. It doesn't become this, this just like uh, space that you're modeling. You have to be kind of particularly aware of where you've gotten your organisms and you have to be open to the fact that doing something in a tank in one space is not going to work in another. And either that's from water quality or air quality or sound uh, like tuna are very sensitive to sound. They will just like, 
they're very dramatic fish, apparently. Um, but so we've seen people who have been really successful aquarists, um, you know, move to another state or to another facility and have absolutely no success with the exact same organisms. Um, and you can continue to ask why an Aquarius will continue to work and, and kind of, when I say tinkering, I mean, really, they'll just try a new thing. Do you want a new food? Would you like to be moved to a new window? Could I play you music? Like anything that will make this work. Um, and that's what they love to do. So especially hobbyists and, and public aquarists, this is their favorite thing. Um, they have a very, uh, a craft-like artistic spirit where they're just willing to spend the time and the energy to get like one fish to do the thing, right? That they got that fish to do previously. Um, and so it is really beautiful because this is one of the reasons that tank technologies are so interesting. Uh, we love in the history of science to talk about technologies that are standardizable in a kind of um, blueprint type of way. Um, and what happens with tanks is you get the technology, but you also get the technique and the technique is not standardizable. It falls into this you know, category of craft and tacit knowledge um, and a kind of highly localized knowledge as well. Uh, and so it's really pretty to see. I, I bet. I mean, uh, we can feel this enthusiasm, by the way, in your book, where you you, you mentioned uh, in, in many times uh, uh, over like that that skill, right? That some of these aquarists have displayed like um, in in recent history and and even today. Um, but also, we, we're back into that gray area, right? Because when we define, we, we've seen how um, you know focusing on tanks kind of you know makes us question a lot of the. Uh, pillars, I would say, of how we define uh, modern science, right? We talked about uh, professionalism. Um, we talked about um, standardization of techniques, uh, but also the ability to just replicate experiments, right? And observation. And, and clearly in the case of aquariums, you might be able to do that, but not exactly the same way, right? Because you would have to tinker a little bit um, in order to uh, adjust to that specific environment. So I think, once again, this is where uh, just focusing on tanks here is like <laughs> such a thought-provoking right way of of diving into uh, just you know our own assumptions about what science is and scientific knowledge is. Um, there is there is a philosophical question I've found that is running through your book, and uh, and it pertains to the ambiguous status of aquariums as simulated environments. And uh, once again, if I if I may quote uh, a. a a very brief uh, passage of your book, you write that the more complex a tank becomes, the more it becomes a simulation of the natural system, and the less likely it is to model that system. The resulting tank is an imaginary ocean under glass, end quote. And, and you talk uh, in various occasions through the book about aquariums being imaginary worlds. Um, so, I mean, once again, here we are, I think, at the crux of a very, very important problem, which is, yes, uh, tanks allow for uh, the production of a lot of uh, the knowledge that we have, um, although meager, right? But a lot of the knowledge that we have about ocean. Uh, but here there's a potential downfall of aquariums in the sense that although they make us see the ocean, they only make us see a certain version of what the ocean is, right? Uh, so, so what's what's at stake here, really, in between this imaginary world of, of, of oceans, their ability to make us see the ocean, 
Um, what is at stake here? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think what's really interesting is I hate to put it, I hate to put it in that way, which is what's at stake because, um, my apologies. No, no, because I think in some sense, uh, studying the ocean, there is a sense of inevitability when it comes to the ocean and, and climate change. And so, um, it's not that I'm doom and gloom about it. It's that there are certain things that are changing very rapidly in the ocean, um, and that people who study the ocean know about. And so, uh, w- when I think about what's at stake in the ocean, I'm less worried about a simulation taking over, which some people, you know, read that passage and they go, oh my gosh, like, and at the end of the book, I, I, I kind of fold this passage in and I say, you know, we will, we will only be able to save what we know and what we know is in tanks right now, right? In, in most instances, if the only way that I can save a coral reef is to outplant what I've grown in a tank. Um, you know, I think some people expect me to say that's really freaking sad. And I'm unwilling to say that only because I haven't decided what I think yet. Um, I think it's an inevitability. Um, and whether I think that's sad or not, I think it's very useful to know that, uh, that these tanks are so incredibly important, both to the way that we view the ocean and to our ability to shape it in the future. Um, it's interesting. I start, I started thinking about this, William Beebe, who was, uh, an early diver and, uh, you know, he used to go visit the New York Aquarium. And then when he took some of his first uh, scuba dives, it, it took him like 30 minutes to get over the fact that um, he thought he was just in an aquarium. And he says, you know, once I shook myself out of this idea, I noticed a bunch of fish around me. I noticed a bunch of these things. Um, and I think about that a lot because one of the things that that we know is that public aquariums especially are very powerful um, education machines. Like kids go to them. They are some of the most trusted conservation units, much more so than zoos. Um, but most of the tanks have coral that are are fake, right? You can't really keep coral in that way. So if you see a coral tank that's just a coral tank, it's probably live coral. But those kind of big, huge tropical tanks in the middle of the shed or, or whatever, they're not real. So then you have to ask yourself, um, what are they showing me? Like, why do I think that that's what a coral reef is supposed to look like? Um, and in some sense, what happens is that we go out looking for things that, that kind of have this feedback for us. So I think that coral that should be saved is really pretty. That's something that happens a lot, right? Um, We work on saving pretty coral because we can use it commercially. We think that that's what coral is supposed to look like. But we also know there's a lot of ugly things in the ocean. (laughs) Or there's a lot of things that you don't want to bring into a tank because it will ruin your pretty coral. Um, And so the question becomes kind of how, how does our kind of aesthetic ideas about the ocean shape the ocean that we hope to save? Um, and the one that we're willing to save in the future and willing to build. And and usually what we find is, is that um, we might not even notice the other organisms, right? They're kind of not, they're not there for us. Um, I think what's at stake there is the same thing that's always at stake when you look at um, 
you know, conservation movement and how it has in the past uh, relied heavily on charismatic megafauna or or kind of uh, animals that uh, can be easily put on a stamp or made into a, a plush toy, right? Um, but in general, the reason that I'm not willing to say it's a bad thing um, is because I might be saying it's an inevitable thing. <laughs> so I don't want people to think um, that it's necessarily bad that we continue to keep things in in tanks. I think it's incredibly important to the way that we conserve the ocean. And I'm not sure that I know what the next step is for that, because what we would need is is a very different and larger type of aquarium. The Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, and I mentioned this at the end, has just started doing midnight zone work. Tanks that allow you basically to not really even see the animals that are in there because they exist in spaces that have no light. This is really forward thinking of them, right? It's really hard to love something that you can't see. Um, And so, you know, maybe I'm overly pessimistic about the simulation. Maybe, maybe we will uh, move beyond it. Uh, But it is true that we convince ourselves often that the more intricate a tank is, the more of the ocean we have captured. And that's really not as true as it could be, right? We weed out pests. We, you know, make sure that the water quality stays good. We don't often allow for a tank to um, go through a cycle which would kill off an enormous amount of organisms in it. Uh, And when we have done that in the past, um, accidentally, we see uh, different systems that work, but, but it's usually only done by accident. So something like Biosphere 2 has oceans. Those oceans, when Biosphere um, was not operational, uh, were taken over by algae. Um, and then they settled down and like things have, have uh, changed in them. Uh, but we don't usually allow our simulations to do that. Right. No, thank you so much for, for clarifying this. Um, I no, I, I, I did I did get that sense in, in the book that um and, and I don't think necessarily we could I mean we could discuss, you know, <laughs> levels of pessimism or optimism, et cetera. But but I think what mostly interesting is the fact that really um, your approach reminds us that, well, at least when it comes to the late nineteenth century up to today, our relationship to the ocean has been like framed by aquariums and 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 we have to live with aquariums in a way right uh and and therefore our you know our future relationship uh with oceans is also determined by how we understand and use these aquariums so i think maybe maybe the the to be the main important uh message about the book in that in that you know in this scenario right that we're facing with the environmental crisis and destruction of a lot of uh oceanic environments is um, uh, yes, is is the importance of just that technology itself, right? And uh, and the fact that uh, there's no there's no dichotomy here, right, between a natural relationship to the ocean in a way, right, without that tinkering, without all that apparatus, uh, and, and and or with it, right? That's not that's not the alternative that exists here. And um, I mean, on that same note, I would like to maybe conclude by you know an, another. One last question I have, it's more of a remark, and I would like you to maybe comment on it. Um, the, the beginning of your book and the end of your book, uh, are fr- it, it, your book is framed essentially by two pictures that I found are in stark contrast, but to me that encapsulates so much you know, of the book. And the first, right, is uh, 
And and I love how you begin the book by saying that you were fascinated by this image and that it you know <laughs> you you couldn't get it get it out of your mind. Um, it, the first image shows a researcher that is knee deep in water, surrounded by the ocean, and is using uh, a very uh, very interesting uh, contraption, right? This lighted floating aquarium, right? Essentially, this glass box that allows him to observe what's happening underneath the surface, right? And uh, the the last picture, or at least to be I think the more precise, it's the second to last picture that shows uh, a, a view of the Discovery Cove at mm -hmm. uh, SeaWorld uh, in Orlando, Florida, which is this artificial coral reef habitat, right, uh, where visitors can swim uh, with uh, tropical specimens, etc. And you describe a very interesting scene where, you know, just lazy visitors letting themselves floating, <laughs> enjoying, etc. Right? I mean, it, it's very, no, it's it, it's very interesting, right? This because these two pictures, I think, to me, um, first of all, show the, the variety of what aquariums can be, right? Um, and the context in which they can be used and by whom they can be used and enjoyed. Um, but they also, I mean, there's a clear contrast, right? Where in one, the first image, it's the ocean that is surrounding the, uh, the aquarium. And in the second image, it's more of the ocean that's being encapsulated completely by the aquarium, right? So th there's a to me that contrast is thought provoking. Like, do you mind maybe like commenting on on your choice of this of these images, uh, and you know what how they helped you uh, maybe through your your um, your project through your research? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I really love that image. The first image um, when you're writing a book, you're always kind of like it's tentative to fall in love with an image because you know, you don't want to fall in love with something and then not get to print it. Um, but the images um, of the marine census and uh, it, the scientist is sitting on Lizard Reef, which is in Australia, using this, um, you know, lighted aquarium. And, and they're using it to, to look at things, but also to take pictures. And part of my book is about um, how important visualization just is to the way that we study the ocean. Right. And how that's how why aquariums exist. We just can't access the marine realm uh, for an extended period of time. And then, you know, kind of uh, ridiculously, I say we, we can if we just move it completely inward. Right. So we build these uh, tanks. Discovery Cove is a tourist destination in Orlando. It's across the street from the SeaWorld. People have a tendency to think about. Um, and you can you can dive there throughout the year. Most of their fish they've started um, getting from breeders. So they basically are kind of at the epicenter of my chapter, my last chapter about ornamental fish breeding. They breed their sharks there. Um, and they're really trying to to make this a sustainable space. Um, and what's interesting is that people have a tendency then to go there, even if they've been in the ocean, uh, because it fulfills all of their desires. They can see an enormous amount of fish at the same time that they're never going to see in the ocean together. Um, and uh, they don't have to go all the way to the shore to do it. They can they can do it in the middle of Orlando and then go to, to you know, Disney later. Uh, I think the contrast for me is extremely useful because I want to think about what is the kind of hidden impact of aquariums 
Um, and especially of the things which we often don't think of as being aquarium technology. So um, in the beginning, you might say, oh, this like floating aquarium is not really aquarium, right? Like it's something different. And you also might say that this large man-made lagoon is not an aquarium. Um, but they both kind of count in that particular way. Uh, and they both show us a really important aspect of how uh, kind of all-encompassing this technology is in the way that we view the ocean. Like there just isn't really a lot of the ocean for the majority of the public without a container, right? That we are kind of either looking into or existing in. Um, and, you know, at Discovery Cove, they call the people that work there aquarists, the people in dive suits and scuba suits. And I think that's just like mind blowing to me. Um, and so, you know, those two pictures are, um, for me, they show the kind of very serious, small laboratory type or field academics, and then the very real application of what, of what these things will become, uh, which is that eventually, especially um, if, if climate changes so drastically, these might be the last spaces that we have for, for future generations to experience the ocean as we envision it should be right? Uh, an enormous amount of fish, very colorful reefs, um, and this kind of ability to just laze around in them. So um, it was a really fun thing to get to that point. <laughs> um, and a lot of the book developed really organically, to tell you the truth. So some people go into their book with a lot of work already done. And obviously I did that, but because this was not my dissertation, I kind of myself floated around in the field uh, I did a lot of interviews and it just accidentally turned out that that I ended up doing a lot of interviews at SeaWorld and that it connected me to this larger community in Florida. I'm from Florida, um, but it kind of happened really organically um, and changed the way that I thought about what a tank was and what kind of we can really do with them. Talking about floating, uh, <laughs> floating around the field, uh, where where is your where is this book and, you know, and, and your research around this book led you uh, now? You, you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of the interview that you just recently did another interview. Um, what are you researching currently? Is it still involving tanks or are we are we in a different space now? No, I'm I'm researching the ocean as tank. <laughs> so I just I just uh, automatically assume that the ocean is a large aquarium now and I'm going to go for it. No, my my new research kind of takes off. um the chapter on coral. So I decided, uh, while I was researching that to just look at artificial reefs more generally, um, Stevens, where I work is a, um, leader in coastal engineering and Hoboken, which is, uh, where Stevens is, is very prone to flooding and it's getting worse, right? So New Jersey is at the forefront of climate change. We have our, um, sea level rise is worse than anywhere else in the country and our temperature rise is worse than anywhere else in the country. So we're in kind of big trouble when it comes to coastal engineering. Um, so I started looking at, um, artificial reefs and the difference between soft and hard engineering when it comes to reef technology and also coastal engineering, so I've been doing a lot of interviews with people that um, are at the forefront of artificial reef building, both in the academy. So people who've been working on breeding hardier coral uh, to outplant and also people in the commercial industry and in the nonprofit 
who go around and do that planting. Um, and it's been really awesome. So I'm developing a digital map of every artificial reef that has ever been built off the continental United States. Um, and it is uh, kind of ridiculous <laughs> because historically, you know, these are the kind of philosophical questions um, in this field, uh, which is like, what is a failed reef, right? If I build an artificial reef and then I just forget it's there, does it still exist? <laughs> and this seems like a pretty stupid question, but it's a big question in the sense that we've been building artificial reefs in the United States uh, since the early uh, 20th century. And if you go on any you know public website, you're going to find reefs that were built within the last 10 years and no other information. Um, and, and so the field doesn't have a very long history, um, almost different than the Aquarius. My Aquarius love to remember stuff. Um, and so I'm interested in writing that history and kind of understanding um, the built marine environment. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that map then. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for, for your time, for answering my, uh, my questions. Once again, a very, very interesting read. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you.